From Konigstein Road in the east to Casitas Gap in the west, an orange curtain is descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. episode of Ohio Talk of the Town. We have someone very special this time to talk about an important cultural event that happened 50 years ago, the release of Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. In this brilliant and controversial film, we talk with Malcolm McDowell, whose indelible performance as Alex, the gleefully menacing leader of a gang of hyperviolent droogs, which is audiences to this day. Malcolm, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. You bet. Yeah, you really do me a kindness. I've been really wanting to have this conversation. 50th anniversary of A Clockwork Orange. It's beyond shocking to me. But Can you believe it? 50 years? Not really. Uh, <laughs> and when I think back to the day-to-day making of the movie, you know, the extra experience... And if somebody had said, you'll be talking about this film, you know, on its 50th anniversary, I would have laughed in their face. Yeah. Um, But there you are. Of course, I knew it was something um, when I was making it. I didn't quite know it would last through the generations. Yeah, and, and really speak to the moment. I just, some of those elements that were in the book... I know Stanley Kubrick changed uh, quite a, you know, structurally changed the book. He kept true to the spirit of it, but, you know, like the fascism that was always kind of lurking in the background and, you know. The- well, I think the fascism is there, you know, that you just see the police. My God, that's very, um, um, speaks to today, doesn't it? Oh, my goodness the corruption there but all the establishment figures are corrupt in the film and um but that was you know that's burgess by the way that's yeah. anthony burgess who i got to spend a week with in new york oh before or after, after. Yeah. <clears throat> selling the movie he wasn't allowed anywhere near the set yeah. not that he wanted to you know um he was rather bitter because he was um you know, they didn't tell him Stanley Kubrick was involved with it, and they got the book cheap. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, authors, they really, they work very hard for very little, really. And it's their baby. It's their baby. <clears throat> you know, he was he was a very brilliant man. Uh, I hear, though, <laughs> that um, from a biography that's done about him, I don't know, maybe five years ago or more now, but um, they said he was a pathological liar. Oh, about his past and everything? Yeah. I don't know whether it's true or not, but um, he was certainly entertaining, and if that's pathological lies, hey, uh, then take it with a pinch of salt, but he was a wonderful companion to be with. I'll bet. There there was a... I read a fair bit of his work. Yeah. Not much of it was really like a clockwork orange. That was of its own. He was desperate for me to play um, Enderby. Oh, really? He wrote these books about this character, Enderby, but, you know, I couldn't get into it. I I would love to have done it, but um, it wasn't, as you say, nowhere near the level of clockwork, which had these amazing elements to it. Not only was the narrative strong, 
Uh, but it had, you know, politics, it, it had great humor, and it was very um, sort of futuristic in a way. He foresaw so many things, you know. And his vision of the world was empty streets at night. People yeah. were too scared to go out. And just being um, gangs maraudering around, you know, on drugs. And <clears throat> I mean, it's pretty close to where we're at, but... Um, yeah. I think that's what... You, you strip away whatever cultural artifice there is, and you get back to that sort of Hobbesian state on the streets and people... Mm. You know, the His theater. idea was that every uh, you would look up and you'd see in these apartments just flickering the TV screens, and that yeah. all the old people would be watching television. You know, that was, uh, um, and and not only the old, by the way, but um, you know, there were uh, there were lots of uh, wonderful things in the film, of course, uh, that. Kubrick uh, brought to it, and in fact, um, you know, it was very much a collaboration. And I, and it wasn't really pointed out to me how much I collaborated because, you know, I just thought, well, I'm the actor doing the part. But um, I went out to Stanley's house. I did a lot, pretty much four or five times a week, before we started shooting the film to talk about the character. And uh, no, he never didn't want to talk about really? the character ever. <laughs> Uh, but about the, you know, everything else, uh, the locations. And um, so he was walking me back to my car and he said, um, what do you think? What, what do you think you wear? And I went, I don't know. I mean, do we have a costume here? Because I'd like to talk, you know. Uh, and he goes, well, uh, do you have anything? I went, oh, no. Stanley, this is a futuristic movie. What would I have? I said, the only thing I've got is my cricket gear in the car. Oh, no. And he goes, let's look at it. <laughs> he goes, put it on. And then he goes, what's this? And I said, well, that's a protector. He goes, wear it on the outside. Oh, the cod piece? Yeah. And th there you go. That is, wow. That's there is the costume. It's one of the most iconic costumes Absolutely. in the history of movies. I think so. Yeah. And that's how it came about. And the eye, eyelash, which is another key element, I found, I was in a, a little boutique sh store called Bieber. It was on Church Street. Um, and I went in, I was looking around. It was just this amazing store, mainly for, you know, teenage girls and stuff. Futuristic kind of clothes, fun stuff. Yeah. And at the cash register, there was this yard of eyelash. <laughs> and I went, a yard of eyelash. I love it. I got it as a joke to give to Stanley, you know, it's a fun thing. And I gave it to him and he, he, he just went, oh, yeah, well, put it on. And I went, oh, it's a joke. You know, he says, yeah, put it on. So I put it on, he photographed one eye, two eyes, and then he called me the next day and he goes, um, I got the photographs back and um, with the eyelash thing. And he goes, wow, you look at your face when there's just one eyelash and you know there's something wrong, but you can't put your finger on it. And he goes, that's what you do. We'll do it that way. Just keep the one eyelash. Because it rivets people's attention. They're, like, trying to figure out what yeah. something ain't yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. It's like the uncanny valley.
Yeah, it's um, wow. Mm. Now he's he's famous for working actors to death. I definitely want to talk about that. Now, a lot of actors don't want to work with him again, and you know the famous fallings out with Kirk Douglas and everyone else early yeah. in his career, yeah, and the yeah. fact that he was like in his twenties and and bossing all these people around really speaks to his vision and determination. But it seemed like you had an excellent rapport with I did with Kubrick. I love the man. I mean, he was amazing, but he betrayed me, of course, at the end. But, um, you know, he took advantage of a young actor who um, he wouldn't talk to my agent, for instance, about my deal. So, mm. you know, stuff like that. And um, he had me sign a waiver on my um, billing for the movie. I mean, but who really cares? I mean, at the end of the day, you know. Yes, you so, are in... What the most one of the most iconic movies ever yeah, made. Yeah, and and I kind of knew that, you know. And uh, did you know it while you were making it? I knew it was extraordinary. I didn't know how much, of course, but um, I knew uh, we were getting stuff that was outrageous. I mean, um, singing in the rain stuff. Yeah, wasn't that you that came up with that? Yeah. I heard. I heard yeah. that story. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we were trying to figure out. How to do this sequence of ultraviolence? Yeah, and it was a, it's a key scene in the film, you know, because um, it's the writer. They they come to this liberal writer's um, house in the country, and it's um, you know a terrible invasion, and they burst in. And in the uh, book and the script, I think it was the boys through bottles through the window and um it's very um it's quite violent and then ends in a, a rape or attempted rape of the yeah. writer's wife which uh, um we'll get back to but it sort of a little bit of that happened to burgess because uh, these instances that he told me about but you know we just come off shooting the end of the movie in the hospital yeah. And it's sort of surreal and has a definite uh, style to it. And uh, I really could not. I said to Stanley, we can't just do this. We've got to find a way uh, to do this that makes it um, palatable, fun or something or elevates it. Yeah, definitely. And it. So we were literally changed the furniture a couple of times and the um we'd come to work and there would be Harrod's furniture van. And <laughs> you think, uh oh. Anyway, I was just sitting they had these steps going down to the it was a a house on two levels had steps and sitting on the staircase thing. And as he passed me he said, Can you dance? <laughs> <laughs> and I jumped up and said, can I dance? And Well, just put a stick in it. I saw you in If doing a, a long time ago, but you danced a lot in that movie, I remember, with the sword play oh, and the yeah, fencing the and everything play. else. That was, like, really fun. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah, you had it in you. I, I mean, I, I, I was just basically joking around. And I was doing the strikes... Uh, on the beat yeah. of Singing in the Rain, which, let's face it, is one of the most iconic 
uh, images in uh, on the screen. You yeah. know, um, Gene Kelly, who can ever forget him? You know, going I wonder what he thought about that. Uh, well, uh, I could tell you actually. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, a, a Kubrick, of course. Uh, as soon as I went into this little routine. Um, shoved me in his car. We drove back to his house, bought the rights to Singing in the Rain, and came back and took a week to shoot the sequence. Well, it was well worth it. Yeah. It's indelible. And it, it, it is. It, and and it, um, it got us over this very difficult thing of, you know, uh, yeah. being um, a, a, an attempted murder-rape. You know, that's not an easy thing to... Um, yeah, it's a heavy, heavy load, and you, it you is. lightened it up and made it. Uh, well, it's even a bit a, like it's surreal. Uh, it's a surreal moment. It's sort yeah. of surreal, and, and that's the only way it would work. Otherwise, I think the film would have ground to a halt yeah. right there. It would have been, and Too I much. knew that instinctively. I, I guess, and uh, I knew that I just couldn't. I didn't even bother throwing bottles through the window. I just knew, I said, Stanley, that, that ain't going to cut it. That's not right. He went, I know, I know. You know he, he, I said to him once, how, because I'd worked with the great Lindsay Anderson. I was going to say, that's like a lot of the, the comedy that goes along with the, with the violence. Like there's yeah. that, that, or would you call it absurdity or something that goes with the violence with the Lindy Anderson movies. Like that's almost, yeah. I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, what a great filmmaker. Oh, my God. Yeah. I do want to stick a pin in that because I saw your one-man show about Lindsay Anderson, and I loved it. I just right. really wanted to tell you that. Yeah, no, the, thank you. Um, well, I did the one-man show about him because people were asking me, who was this man? You know, I was, who was he? He was the greatest director. Yeah, Wales of August. I remember how much I loved yeah, that movie. And Sporting Life. Oh, yeah. The Sporting well, Life is one of the great... Um, movies of the period or any period but and it's i think richard harris's finest performance and rachel roberts who steals it actually yeah she's amazing in it but um now if you i not not i'm sorry um oh lucky man you mm -hmm. wrote that i i don't know you can tell me if i get this wrong or don't don't contradict me if, if i do but that you <laughs> approached him about let's work together again and he told you that there's no good parts so you're like well fuck it i'll write my own part then basically that is correct oh well thank you for being so kind i said i want why don't we work together again we're a good team and Lindsay, and of course i knew what buttons to push you know and yeah I, we were great friends and he said if you want to work with me again I suggest you write a script. And and he walked off. This was at, on the um, promenade thing at the Cannes Film Festival where we were about to win the Grand Prize. And um, so I started to write um, the synopsis of my uh, experiences as a coffee salesman. Oh, is that true? You mm -hmm. actually were mm -hmm. in the North? In, in the, the north, north of England? absolutely in the north of England, and and took I had forty pages or something. I t took them uh, to show him, and um, he was uffing and you know oh, really, uh, and he started reading. He goes, "Is this supposed to be a comedy?" And I said, "Look, just finish it, and then we'll talk about it." So he 
he finished, he came over to me and put the pages down and said, Malcolm, it isn't very good, is it? I said, yes, it is good. And it's going to be your next film. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, well, then you better call David Sherwin. Now, he was the writer of If. And David and I then started work on what would become a lucky man. Wow, I just remember all these character actors in there, like oh, the, the best. everyone, everyone from yeah, Ralph Richardson, Arthur Loeb, is well, genius. My God, the young, ooh, I'm, Helen Mirren. Oh, oh Helen, and Helen, yeah, wow, yeah, I know that's indelible. I mean, mm -hmm. now you were still like you couldn't have been out of your twenties at that time, right? I think I was just thirty. <clears throat> oh. Yeah, wow, that was a, a bizarre movie, but. Really fun to watch, really fun to watch. It's an amazing film. It's very, uh, it, it's sort of um, subversive, really, yeah. if you think about it. Um, but Lindsay wanted to make a picaresque movie. Yes, exactly. It has a it, Don Quixote quality to it. Yeah. In the sort of vein of, um, What's it called? A wonderful Tom, film. Tom, no, uh, uh, Sullivan's Travels. Oh, okay. And he said to me, have you seen that? And I went, no, I haven't seen it. It's an old movie. How would I see that? So the next time it played at the National Film Theater, he took me to see it. And um, fantastic movie, actually. Really wonderful. And um, anyway. Um, Was that, uh, goodness, uh, I'm blanking on the actor's name now. So good. Yeah, I know, and I'm, I've forgotten too. That's terrible. Uh, but he, he was brilliant. Um, yeah, he was in uh, Aaron Brockovich. Oh, Albert Finney? No. Yeah, oh, it wasn't Albert Finney, never mind. No, 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 no. The Sullivan's Travels is made in the 40s. I think. Oh, okay. Anyway, so, um, yeah, I mean, he, um, he gave me three books to read in terms of the script. Voltaire's Candide, oh yeah, Kafka's America, and a movie, uh, and a, a sorry, a book written by Thornton Wilder called Heaven's My Destination. Huh. About uh, it's about a salesman in the Midwest. That film, that book, rather, I put aside immediately because I didn't feel that it was anything Not connecting to the material. No, 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 it was a whole different vibe. Yeah. Well, Thornton Wilder's got Ojai connections because he went to Thatcher School. He wrote his first play here. Is that right? Oh if my you go God. back to our wow. town and you look at the time that it's set, yeah. you look at the characters, you look at like the first uh, Model T to show up in town, all that was right out of his experience yeah. when he was in Ojai. Because he didn't know any small towns before. He'd always been boarding schools. He lived in China. Mm -hmm. This was his gateway to America came through Ojai. Wow. wow, that's really beautiful. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, well, that's the, the legend, anyway. Well, I'm sure it's true. You know, the book that really um, resonated was the uh, Voltaire's Candide. Oh yeah. About, about the, the earthquake and Lisbon. The and journey, all. the journey, yeah. and the the beatings he takes. The that he's beaten by everybody, but he comes bouncing back as um, you know, um, with great um, innocence and love of humanity yeah um that's really what i tried to do with that character mick travis in that yeah you know, which like picked him. up from uh if 
Is that right? Was there any connection or continuity no. between those two characters? Well, because I, the end of same the same actor played it. So yeah, that's, that's it. But the boarding school situation, I remember there was some a, a big shootout or something at the end. Yes. I don't know. It's been a while. I think. No, I, no, that's, that's that's what happens at Founders Day. Um, yeah, the boys uh, light uh, a fire under the stage. Smoke pours up in the middle of. Um, the general's uh, remarks. And, oh, yeah. Uh, telling the, the boys, get out there and fight and, uh, and all that nonsense, you know. So, um, and as they all run out, it's sort of, but but it's it's not real, you know. It's not Columbine. Yeah. Um, it is surreal. It's like uh, Bunuel. You see mm-hmm. great craters where mortars have gone off, and the next shot, they're not there. Yeah, it's in the mind. Nobody seems to really get get hurt too bad. No, it's in the minds of uh, protagonists. Oppressed schoolboys' fantasy. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So back to uh, Clockwork Orange. Now these, you know, many many takes that Kubrick. I have a friend of mine whose theory is that he wanted actors to have a blank affect from their exhaustion. That that was a way that he could get his story across without being interfered. And there's like all these great. Alfred Hitchcock stories about he, you know, would basically have the film completely shot in his head every last moment. He only worked with Edith Head on the costumes mm-hmm. beforehand. He'd have everything done. So, you know, an actor would say, oh, well, let me try the line this way. And then, you know, there'd be no film in the can or no film in the camera. On. You yeah. know, it was like he'd just... Is that Hitchcock? Yeah, he'd just do everything. And I figure that Kubrick probably picked up a lot on some of that... No. Uh, you don't think he was no, like a no, was, working actors like no, that? No, no. And I, I think, look, when I asked him how, how did, how do you direct, Sandy? What's your? He goes, well, he goes, I'll tell you one thing. Um, he goes, I don't know what I want, but I do know what I don't want. And when you think about that, so you'd start with a rehearsal, of course, put it up on its feet. And um, move it around a bit. Now, this could take a day. It could take four days. It could take a week or more um, until you found the key. The thing about Stanley, he wouldn't even turn the camera unless he felt he had something really great. And every, every scene had to have sort of magic. And you'd have to look and find it. Yeah, it wasn't going to be obvious until you no. worked your way through every other option. You'd work your way through it. But, you know, on this particular film, Stan- this is before Stanley had um, gone a little crazy doing 100 takes and all that. He didn't do any of that. He wasn't quite there yet. No, we'd, we'd get it in t- two or three takes and then move on. But, um, you know, if there was a technical issue... You know, once only once it went to fifty, and I said to him, "Hey, uh, Stanley, I don't want to hear them shouting out take fifty. Can you make it one A?" <laughs> and he said, "No." <laughs> well, so. everybody, you know, the eye clamp scene—that's the one that gives everybody the heebie-jeebies. Right. But me, I almost drowned when I was a kid in that water trough scene. Please tell me he didn't make you do like twenty takes of that shot because no we oh we my did. god it looked like so it looked like it was freezing cold it was it was horrible horrible but and they had to color the water with um 
you know, um, Bovril, you know, that is. It's oh, like yeah, beef broth. Beef extra. Yeah. Oh, it was, I smelled so like an abattoir. And it what, was horrible. Why was that? Oh, because of the way it looked on camera? No, to hide the oxygen bottle. Oh, because you were, oh, well, I'm glad to hear that, that he wasn't. But you try finding a mouthpiece when you're being pounded on the back, and the thing is moving around, and you're trying to grab it, and, and it's freezing water, you know, you, I mean, five seconds, and you're out of breath. You, you can't even hold your breath. Oh, well, that's the scene that gives me the heebie-jeebies, not the eye clamps. Yeah. But I also noticed that, of course, your erstwhile droogs or cops now are joining constabulary. That's, of course. That seems like very uh, MAGA, very yeah. MAGA era. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. you know, oh, I was going to mention you, Anthony Burgess had this beautiful book. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, called Joanna Jumper. And it was like a no. um, fictionalized memoir of his father, who was a oh. dance hall uh, piano player, music hall piano player in the north of England, yeah. Blackburn, Lancashire, seaside resorts and such. Yeah. And it was so sweet and lovely. And I read that right oh. after I read A Clockwork Orange, and I couldn't believe it was the same author. Well, you know, it's interesting you mention uh, Burgess's father. Because uh, Stanley sent Burgess and myself to New York to pick up um, these awards, um, the New York Film Critics Awards. And, you know, you're in, I don't know, Saudi's restaurant, and the, the next table is Jack. And, yeah. I mean, it's Angelica. like... Angelica. It's exactly... It was jammed with, like, the A-listers. And uh, Burgess got up and said... Um, I've been sent by Go um, Stanley Kubrick to <laughs> pick up. correct himself mid-sentence. <laughs> yeah, that caused big laugh. He goes, I have no connection whatsoever with movies, just so you know. So really, I am. Uh, I'm sort of excited to pick up this award on his behalf. He said, but the only thing that, um, only connection I have is that my father uh, used to accompany on the piano silent movies. And um, my father looked, glanced up at the screen and saw a festive uh, dinner going on and got into the festive music and, and got carried away with it. And by the time he looked back up, he realized it was the Last Supper. <laughs> <laughs> so he was fired. <laughs> yeah, well, I learned more about music from that book, The Joanna Jumper, than almost anything else because he broke down how his dad would come into, you know, a dance hall, not knowing any of the repertoire yeah, and would just be able to like bang a chord. And if it wasn't quite right, he would know which way. So he was always just one chord away from being able to play anything. I just thought it was just miraculous, but you know, it was all like the music theory that he goes over mm -hmm. and he kind of broke it down and made it simple. And then all of a sudden music seemed so much less intimidating to me after reading that book. And, of course, uh, in Clockwork, you know, uh, it's Burgess who um, has Alex as obsessed with, with Beethoven. Beethoven yeah. And the Ninth and the Choral Symphony, particularly. Yeah. And that um, when he hears that, something happens to his psyche and he goes into um, kind of... A state of rapture. Yeah. 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 That was beautiful. And how 
you know, not to give anything away, I guess after 50 years, spoilers have a expire expiration I, I, date. I, I don't think the spoiler can work on this one. <laughs> but just that he was able to get that music back, that he was able to reclaim that. That mm-hmm. was that was the part of the a good part of the journey. Yeah, that that was very interesting, though, wasn't it? I burgess to you know the uh, the aversion therapy would take away the only thing that he really loved yeah which was music and in a weird way that's um that was really a a, a big thing in in terms of making it palatable you know but it's interesting when the film came out you know people were really mad, mad. yeah didn't didn't Kubrick have to pull it from distribution? To, That's a, that was a whole different thing. But when it opened in New York, um, I, I was standing at the back of um, Cinema One on Third Avenue, and it was you know it was, I don't know nine hundred people or something. It was jammed. Absolutely, I stood at the back, and it was really a bit weird. I was like, wow, it's total silence. I mean, they didn't laugh. Just, it was um, taken very seriously. Yeah. And what did you think? Did you have any idea which? I, just, I thought, wow, they don't like it very much, no. you know. Because and when it ended, people just sat in their seats. They didn't move. I walked into the lobby, and a woman ran past me and threw up in the lobby. And just from the anxiety of watching this. I don't know. Maybe she was sick. Who knows? Oh, okay. Who knows? I don't know. But I, mean, you, but I took it yeah, that I'd made personally. her sick, you know. Yeah. And and then the New York Times came out with an editorial that really went and attacked Stanley for being a fascist, which, of course, is ridiculous. Well, it's exactly the opposite of how I read the intent of that film. Well, he was saying, I wrote to them as well, I wrote a, a complaint, but um, what they were saying was by making Alex palatable a hero if you like um you're uh, selling you know selling this fun, an immoral this an immoral man right, yeah. basically and you're making an immoral man attractive uh hello aren't all these immoral men that um i mean you can start with hitler but they mesmerize their audiences they're yeah. very attractive well also in the film business at that time you already had like uh you know, uh, five easy pieces, and uh, no, that was after. Oh, was that after? Which one am I thinking of? Uh, easy Rider and some of those other that, complicated. That uh, was yeah, but that's not really anything to do with it. There, really, mm. it's a that's um, a story of just these hippies in the South on their bikes yeah. and being, you know. I'm trying to think of a good anti-hero from that that era, or maybe like. Uh, what was the one with Terrence Stamp and Julie Christie? Far from the matting crowd, he was kind of an asshole. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there, was, there is an attractiveness to, you know, that whatever that menace, something about that. Yeah, I mean, his. Um, what What's great about that character is he's got a joie de vie. He yeah. loves life. That's very attractive. Yeah. Well, you were such a beautiful boy back then. I mean, that's, yes, that's well, part of the gravity's at its way. No, <laughs> you're still a beautiful man. Come on now. But like, uh, you know, we had a story uh, about in the last issue that Emma Parker Bowles wrote, and she oh, was Emma, just so yeah. excited about 
you know, the wild horse eyes. And I thought, oh, that's it, the wild horse eyes. I love that. <laughs> but also I thought it was really funny. I think that your wife Kelly should be a lady just so that her oh. mother will have to call her that. I thought that was a... a that, that is not going to happen, <laughs> I, I have to say. <laughs> so um, the timing is interesting for A Clockwork Orange because, and I, I know we've talked about this before, that, uh, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, epic film one of the greatest films ever made but people did not see it for that at the time they didn't even no. really know what they were looking at do you t can you tell me about the climate going into making a clockwork well, orange yeah absolutely that um you know that um 2001 a space odyssey was when it opened was a total disaster the main critics savaged it one of the worst movies, blah, blah, blah. We've waited. It was one of the most awaited movies because Kubrick had just come off Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. Which was uh, you know, a great film and um, and did very well at the box office. I mean, all Stanley's films, by the way. And um, the only good reviews, the only interesting reviews were from the counterculture papers, like the the village the, voice and the all. barb the berkeley barb and the, yeah all those the free press yeah and my friend mike kaplan actually was working at mgm in their uh, publicity department noticed this and suggested a change of marketing and to um so he came up with the fetus and which just says the ultimate trip oh man and that really started the change around and, you know, and the, the thing to do was to, you know, have smoke a joint and go see 2001 yes. and see if you could spot the ape with the sneakers on. Oh, no, now I got to. They I put that room around. There's it doesn't no exist. No, no. But um, it's interesting because I, I had worked before I did clockwork. I'd worked with Robert Shaw. And he and I said. Is that where you got stung on the nose? By yeah. The he, oh, yeah. <laughs> So the lip, oh my God! Um, but while, while you had your hands bound and yeah, behind my back, I know that's awful. <laughs> um, it was interesting because um, um, anyway, Robert Shaw had gone to see Stanley about maybe playing one of the apes, and he goes, "Well, what do you mean, play an ape?" And he goes, yeah, and, you know, like, uh, he goes, well, are you going to see my face? And he went, probably not. He goes, well, what the hell am I doing here? You know, Robert was really affronted. Thought yeah. he was nuts. And in fact, Stanley ended up getting dancers to play oh. the apes, which were really cool. Yeah, that was great motion. And he's known for motion in his but films. Can you imagine, though, a movie, a major movie out of a studio and no one speaks for the first 45 minutes. Yeah. I mean... Brave. That's virtuoso, even. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, extraordinary. And I think that 45 minutes is one of the... Gripping. Most, yeah. Oh, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. It's so amazing. And that cut, that's a cut right up there with the cut from uh, Lawrence of Arabia, the match oh, to the God. burning sun in the desert. Oh, yeah. by the way, David Lean. Did you know David Lean? I did. But Annie Coates, I knew, who was the editor on that. And she told me she had a suite of rooms downstairs and David's was upstairs and he'd be cutting and she'd be cutting. And she wanted to ask him something and went upstairs. And the door was ajar 
and he was doing that cut and he was banging his foot on the floor to count out the beats before the sun hits. Amazing. That's one of the great cuts. And so is the bone being thrown and the spaceship. Yeah, and Richard Strauss. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Zarathustra. Yeah, yeah. I think the soundtracks in most of his movies and Lindsay Anderson's movies are amazing soundtracks mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Such an important part, such a huge component and huge. Yeah, and you know that that by the way, the soundtrack for Clockwork was the first soundtrack from a movie that uh, produced a golden record, and mm-hmm. that was the first time really a movie soundtrack had really gone on the charts and got stood up on its own. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, and that changed the whole way that Warner Brothers treated music and film from there on. Yeah, for the better. Oh, totally, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So um, I know we've talked about Napoleon before because um, I'm just fascinated by epics, you know, like like, uh, David, like uh, Lawrence of Arabia. That's one of my favorite books, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. I, I couldn't believe that they made such a fantastic movie out of it. It just seemed too big. And I feel the same way about Napoleon. How... Could you know? I heard that Stanley had something like forty thousand extras lined up in Romania. That he had these costumes that were all printed out on paper that were you yeah. know so much cheaper. That you know these amazing set pieces. And I've read the script, and it's unbelievable scale because he this doesn't is just a, pick this like, a script. I haven't read the script. I don't know. Yeah, they well, if you just look for the greatest movie never made, that will always come right up at the oh, top. Yeah, of course. Um, and it's too long. It's like 150 pages or something. It'd be like three yeah. hours. Well, here uh, the only uh, real story that I have that connects me in any way to his Napoleon is just before I started shooting Clockwork, I was walking um, to the new je- my newsagent, which was on Notting Hill Gate, right? And I'm walking, uh, and who is coming up? an old, old friend of mine, Ian Holm. Oh, nice. And we were chatting, and uh, he's an adorable guy. He just passed away this last year. And one of the great actors, by the way. And I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company with Ian, and he was the star of it. You know, he'd done the... Um, oh, the um, anyway, he, he was playing uh, Henry V, and honestly, I watched every single performance that he gave. As the St. Crispin's Day speech? He was just uh, just magnetic. He was absolutely an incredible performance. And I watched it from the wings. I was riveted just to watch him, you know, and just enjoy what, and I'm being very close to it. Anyway, um, I bumped into him on Hill Gate. And he said, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm about to work with uh, this Stanley Kubrick. And I saw his weird look on his face. I, I said, what? And he said, be careful of that man. I went, why, why? He goes, I was over at his house for the past 18 months because I was going to play Napoleon. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he'd seen me... Um, in the uh, cycle of uh, historical play- Shakespeare plays. And um, he cast me as uh, Napoleon, and uh, I was out there. And then suddenly, I couldn't get him on the phone. 
He goes after me being part of the family. And and probably turning down a lot of jobs. Who knows? I mean, um, so he goes, yeah, it was really, really upsetting that he did that. But um, I went, wow, that's really weird. Well, you know, we're starting in a week. I know. Uh, you know. Did that make you nervous? No, no, no you... because, because I had a feeling that um, I knew Stanley by then. And I knew that he wouldn't start unless the script was he thought was right. And that um, things were, you know, made it possible for him to really get into it. Um, you know, he did this huge thing after Clockwork, you know, Barry Lyndon. Oh, yeah, which he was a lot of those big set-piece battle scenes yeah. and such that he yeah. would have loved. And didn't he, like, the innovations of the lighting and the cameras with the work and the lenses and everything? So, so He cool. used this lens. He actually used it uh, on Clockwork, too. It's a very... It was a very light sensitive, so you you could sort of... Oh, filmed by candlelight. Yeah, exactly. So, but, but all the actors have to sort of sit on top of the candles almost. I mean, he's lucky he didn't burn somebody. <laughs> yeah, singe him eyebrows. Yeah. Um, which was sort of weird. All the candles were on the floor. It was a, a little bit strange, but I guess uh, that's how they must have got light. You know, it's, um, of course, it's a very beautiful film to look at. Um, Stunning. This is what really sets him apart, though, isn't it? That um, he's a director, a, a great director. Now, of course, there have been, you know, many great directors, John Ford and people like this. But there's only one Stanley Kubrick. And what sets him apart is that, you know, he made masterpieces in all sorts of different genres. Yeah. And that, I think, is the difference. You know, he horror movies, romantic comedies, anti-war films. You know, yes, uh, Swords and Sandals, like uh, Spartacus. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, he he wanted that removed from his... Uh, yeah. Oh, really? Why was that? Because I thought that was a beautiful movie. He Because he didn't... He didn't get on with uh, being told what to do. And, you know, oh, it was yeah. Kurt's... It was it's his baby, yeah. I mean, it was his been... baby, and he brought Stanley in because he'd done Paths of Glory with him. And he thought that, um, you know, but Stanley, of course, wanted to do his movie. And so it was a big... And um, it was not good. And yeah. In fact, I got a, a call from Kirk Douglas, who I was in, living in America then. I think I was doing Time After Time. And he was doing his book. And he goes, listen, I, you know, how do you get on with Kubrick? I went, okay, you know, yeah. He goes, well, he's a prick. You know? And he went on like this. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't want to go. I don't want to be quoted, you know, yeah. in his book. So I just left it out. Yeah. Well, I think there's... You know, I don't even know how you would get the level of work without being an asshole. Is there anyone, any directors that you've ever worked with that have been able to, to, like, how, how does Look, that process work? I think, honestly, and I think you could say this for all artists, uh, people that care about the stuff, you know, they're 100% committed. And sometimes that ruffles feathers because you're working with people that really just want to go home. You know, and yeah. well, the, we've worked 14 hours. What's the big deal? Come on, you know. And if you're completely driven like Stanley, 
and like many actors I know, you know, that um, they want, they don't want to settle for second best. They will, yeah. they don't want to compromise. They want it to be, you know, I, mean, I know, um, uh, what's his name? Shirley McLean's uh, brother, but. Um, oh, Warren Beatty. Warren was like that on, um, when he worked for. Um, um, Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, no, no, no. Um, Altman. Oh, okay. McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah. Oh, my God. And, Bob, and, and he'd go, Bob, I want another take. And Bob would go, I got it. Warren, I got it. Okay. He goes, I want another take. I really, he goes, okay, you know what, Warren? You do it. You direct it. Uh, I'm going home. And he'd leave. And, of course, they'd go on another a couple of hours. And um, so I said to Altman, he was telling me the story. And I went, and so did you ever use any of it? And he goes, of course not. <laughs> Didn't even print it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, uh, Julie Christie, I, I imagine you know her. I've had the biggest crush on her. Oh, my God. I was at some event here in town yeah. where she was showed up. And, and she was showing McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah. I was there well, I for was, that. I was just standing in a corner, and she just looked me up and down like, yeah. Ooh, oh my God, I got such a thrill out of that. She's just so effortlessly flirty and fun and oh, just a, such a lovely woman. Fantastic. I'm a very underrated actress. In my I opinion. didn't know she's underrated. I thought she'd be, I thought she seems like she's got quite a sterling reputation. Oh, I know. But uh, I think that the, when she first started, it was always the blonde bombshell. Yeah. Because... Uh, I remember her, she made such a, an incredible start to her career in a movie called Billy Liar that was directed by John Schlesinger and starred, um, well, Albert Finney did the stage version and uh, Tom Courtney played Billy Liar on the film. And she was one of this girl, she was walking down the street with this blonde hair, flicking her hair, and it was sort of like one of the most iconic entrances into film. Yeah. And everybody fell in love with Julie Christie from that. And then she got all these parts and, you know, Dr. Shivago and all that. I think the last thing I saw her in was something, a Sarah Polly movie, Canadian film, where she played she was Woman Who Lost Her. She memory. was fantastic. Um, Alzheimer's or something. Yeah. She was really wonderful in it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm just curious about, you know, what you're working on now. Anything fun? Oh. Anything you can talk about? Because you you must be one of the hardest working men in Hollywood. I don't know about that. We've all taken a year off, haven't we? Yeah. <clears throat> I'm doing this thing in uh, New York at the moment, going back and forth, uh, called Gossip Girls. Oh, is it a adaptation of the it's TV sort series? Of like it's so, yes. With Blake Lively and that crew. That was such a fun show. Yeah. Well, this is. This is uh, for HBO, so you can imagine. <clears throat> it's sort of um, like that, but better. I didn't see the original, so I don't really yeah. know. So I'm doing just a couple of those. Then I start this film with this wonderful young girl director um, called Spitfire, which I love. Then uh, I go into another film... Um, hopefully, if all things fall into place, which they look like they are, written by Bo Goldman, one of the great Hollywood screenwriters. Mm. And it's a script that's been around but never been done. 
and I've been attached to it for years, I think 20 years or something. And wow. I've always wanted to do it, but it's called Every Time We Say Goodbye, and it's a very beautiful... Um, and, and I gave it to the young uh, director that I was working for on Spitfire, and she read it, loved it. So that looks like a possibility. And then um, there's a film that um, Paul Weiss, who's... Uh, Wonderful writer, director, you know, uh, he did Grandmother with, um, which is a wonderful uh, film. Anyway, the one he wanted me to do is um, with Jane Fonda and, um, oh my God, my mind is. Oh, tell me. I think no, it's, it's a, you know, the, the two of them in the series. Oh, um, uh, Lily Tom. Lily. Yeah. Frankie yeah. and Johnny or. No, no. Well, this is. Um, not that, but it's he wrote two great parts for these girls, you know. Oh it's man, fantastic! It's really. And what's your part? Um, well, it, it's it's about um, basically these three women that were at college together, and it starts off at the funeral of one of them, and I'm the widow. Oh. So and um, and as they one of the, the ladies passed me, she goes. I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> I guess. Excuse me. <laughs> this right at the eulogy. I mean, can we not? I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> and it turns out something really bad happened. I mean, it's one of those. It's really terrific script, and you know, I'm a great admirer of Paul Weiss. He's absolutely brilliant. And we worked together on Mozart in the Jungle. And oh yeah, what a fun show that was. Oh uh, yeah, great. So I'm really thrilled to be doing that. Uh, so that's enough to be going on. Yeah. Now, um, I you told me, I don't know if you want to talk about it or not, but you actually got COVID-19. My son did as well, <clears throat> and it was bad for him. What was it like for you? Like, tell, um, oh, I, I can't, uh, uh, to be honest, I was very lucky and uh, just felt like a flu. And um, my wife kept saying, oh, it's not COVID. You're just thinking that because of that, you know. So I, uh, you're probably right. I texted my doctor, who immediately came back on Facebook. He's in L.A., you know. He said, look, Malcolm, I haven't seen one case of flu, nor a cold. We're in the middle of a pandemic. What do you think you've got? Go get tested, which I did, and it was, of course, positive. And then the next day, he got me into this clinic um, in, in uh, L.A., um, to this immersion th therapy with all the antibodies. And I and that really, I think, uh, got me over it. So I yeah. didn't, thank God it didn't go to my lungs, but... Um, they got it, got it early. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I just got my second vaccination and it's a, quite a load off. It was a bad reaction. I felt very sick to the point where I'm like, well, how bad could COVID be if I'm feeling this crappy for the I've, shot? I've had one, uh, just the first one. Yeah, that only made me feel a little tired. The second one, yeah. very flu-like aches and fevers. Did and you sweats. get the Pfizer or the Moderna? Moderna. Okay. But then, like, less than 48 hours later, you could feel yourself yeah. just rising up from it. So, so awesome. Now, it yeah. just, you know, it's I didn't even know how much of that kind of creeping dread and low-level anxiety I've been Well, you know, around. it's a very... Um, insidious um, virus that is extremely smart 
and the world yeah. change <clears throat> when it feels threatened and go into something else. So, yeah, it's like uh, the original swine flu. We're still getting booster shots for that every year, you know, yeah. new flu yeah. shots. Oh, I, um, I just started reading this awesome book, not to get too lost, called Code Breakers by Walter Isaacson. Oh, right, right. About Jennifer Doudna, how yeah. when she was a girl, her science teacher told her, well, you know, this isn't for, you know, science isn't for girls. So, yeah. of course, she goes into science. Yeah. And then when she gets her into her grad work and doing lab work and such, that was when DNA, G, the human genome code was yeah. all, and all yeah. the big boys like Craig Ventner and David Baltimore got all the research money. There was nothing yeah. left over. So she was like, well, she had to go with irony, which everybody thought was like in genetics. It was oh, like yeah. the redheaded stepchild. So then she figured out, well, no, actually RNA is the brains of the outfit. And that's those are the ones that are putting the code back and forth from the DNA. Right. And that was where CRISPR came from, yeah. which will yeah. change everything. We don't even know. It's only been around for seven mm -hmm. or eight years. We have no idea how much CRISPR is going to change everything. And maybe not for the better either. It's like mm -hmm. all these designer babies and everything. But then when COVID hit, that was her team that got into the lab and figured out that, you know, this, this, these little snippets of code that have been dealing with these viruses for mm -hmm. forever, there's already the information encoded to teach our bodies how to respond to these. And that's where these mRNA vaccines came from, not just from her, but from, right. you know, her team and the, her colleagues and, you know, it's a really fascinating story. I love, yeah. I love good science Well, stories. you know, the great story about vaccinations, of course, is Salk. Yeah. And that's really one of the great yeah. stories. And he, he refused to um, get an intellectual property or exactly. a copyright on that. He wouldn't refused. make any money on it. Yeah. Just, I know, it's brilliant. Yeah. An extraordinary man. And it, that changed um, everything Yeah, medically in America, for sure, because it was... A big problem, you know, 600,000. Every when, summer, like, they were closing pools. Oh, and, oh, oh. Yeah. So. Well, I'm in the Rotary Club, and that's one of our projects is ending polio. And we're down to, like, two countries and a couple dozen cases a year. We're, oh, like, so any, close. I know. It's to be an extinct. I yeah. can't remember what the countries are, but... Uh, uh, well, it's, like, the border. Nigeria is one. Nigeria. There was also an outbreak yeah. in Syria when they had all those... Uh, yeah. But that seems to have settled down now. And I think it's just the other country is like uh, Pakistan up in the mountains, the tribal region. But he was brilliant because he figured out it was the dead virus. Yeah. And they all thought, the other scientists, that it had to be alive. And he goes, Attenuated no. virus. Yeah. Amazing. So, yeah. anyway, there you are. So, um, I just, you know, I know you a little bit around town and I just you know, wanted to tell you, you always come off as one of the lads. And I just appreciate that. Oh. You just like, uh, you know, I'll bet you all the kids that you grew up with back in uh, England, they probably felt like they were part of your success and seeing you getting out into the world. And I don't know. That's I, a I gift. hope so. I mean, yeah. um, you know, uh, I haven't been really back to live in England. I did a series there a couple of years ago now, just before COVID, actually. For Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Oh, it's those guys. Great, uh, Sean guys. of the Dead. Exactly. So great funny. guys, great yeah. guys, very nice guys. And, um, you know, we just did one, one season of it, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And um, 
It was nice being back in London. I hadn't been back really in London. I lived there for any length of time, you know, since '79, um, which is when I left. Wow. And I've lived in Ojai um, uh, since '82. Yeah, that's really something. Mm. Yeah. I time. just got back from London the day before the travel ban. We oh, were wow. really, we wow. were in Hampstead visiting. My girlfriend was a doctor in London for like nine, or, 12 years uh-huh. and uh, she's American, but she's dual citizen. And so we went back to visit her, some of her friends and just squeaked under the, under the. Hampstead's woof. nice though, isn't it? So yeah. If you're going to be stuck somewhere, Hampstead's not the not a bad place. place. Yeah. I know. I know. It's very nice. So how did you, like, what was the process of, of Ojai? I know you've told me before that you were friends with Guy Webster, who I miss Guy Webster, dearly. Guy Webster, Guy Webster. Guy was shooting uh, my ex-wife, Mary Steenbergen, and myself on a project in Florida directed by Marty Ritt. And Mary was the star of this thing. She was playing um, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. Oh, the yearling. Exactly, exactly. Um, The only one good book she wrote. Um, I don't think she wrote. We got a Pulitzer, so if you're only going to write one, that's 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 a good good one to do. I know, I know. Uh, Anyway... um, I was telling Guy, you know, who was such an affable, wonderful person, and everybody's friend was Guy. Yeah, he's so awesome. Awesome. He's a wonderful man. Sadly, passed away a couple of years ago now. But um, anyway, I was telling him we were looking, you know, for a ranch, and uh, he said, you should try Ojai. Now, in my uh, Britishness, I sort of, put that in my brain as being Ohio. <laughs> yes, of course. And, and being a long way from L.A. and wouldn't do at all, but I didn't say anything. The next week, he'd come back from Florida, and he called me and said, there's a piece of land for sale uh, opposite where he lived, and uh, these pieces of land don't come up that often. You should come look at it. And I went, well, it's so far, isn't it? He goes, it's only an hour and 20 minutes. I went, oh, oh, I, I didn't realize this. Anyway, you know, I came up, saw the land, and bought it there and then. Yeah, and you've been here ever since. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 I, I know uh, the story. Peter Bellwood wrote about you, my dear friend. He's my mentor. and you Bellwood know, is one of the greats. Yeah. I love Bellwood. Brilliant writer. Brilliant and a wonderful sense of humor. Um He's just one of those characters, you know, so English in a way, and yet yeah, um, so Oxbridgey. Yeah, yeah, I know. He's a Cambridge man, isn't he? Yeah, that's yeah. where I lived when I was in. The, I was in uh, headquarters, Third Air Force at RAF Mildenhall for three and a oh, half right. years. So oh, really? that was where we go to listen to music at the trolley stop in Cambridge, and yeah. great music scene, and all those wonderful buildings. But well, I was reading about the Ox. Oxford and Cambridge, um, you know, the floodlights and all that, and how these great uh, comics, you know, uh, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore. And yeah, all those were all, they're Peter, all from Peter there. Bellwood's. Uh, Peter Bellwood. Peter was the head of the footlight. In fact, there's a, a great story oh, yeah. in uh, John Cleese's autobiography where he was just got picked up on the show Peter was in, Beyond the Fringe. Yeah. Or yeah. Up the Beyond the Fringe, yeah. And 
they were driving around and John Cleese had decided that he was going to go back to work in his dad's uh, newsagent shop and wherever yeah. and that <laughs> this wasn't the life for him. But he had this long, like three and a four, four hour car drive with Peter Bellwood and had so much fun and said, no, this is my life. This I'm, you know, really? stage and screen show business. Peter is so vibrant and so fun that like, these are this is my tribe. I'm going to be hanging with these people. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, you know, he was the great performer though, John. Yes. You know, yeah. Cleese. I mean, he's a brilliant performer, no question. Ministry of Silly Walks and all his physicality. And, yeah. And also the TV show he did, Faulty Towers. Faulty Towers. Yeah. I mean, it's spectacular. They only did, I think. 13 of them or something. Is that really? Yeah. I thought there was like no. three or four seasons. No, one season only. Oh. And um, it, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, he's... Um, and of course, Bellwood was in that mix. He was one of them, yeah. But what I remember about Peter, and I, I've known him a while, and is that I saw him do something which was so brave and such a beautiful... A gift to Lucy, his daughter. Oh, the, so talented. It's so yeah. fun to watch her career take off as she, a graphic novelist. She's yeah. incredible. Well, she wrote, when she was, I think, 14 or 15, she wrote a play. And they put it on. Paper a, Castle. Yeah, 150, do you remember? Yes. Was, and uh, I, I went to see it. And Peter had learned this part that never stopped talking. Yeah. For two hours, he learned the parts. And as a, a beautiful gift, you know, to Lucy, I, I, I just felt so amazed and, and so proud of him that he, and he was superb. And it was a really good play, actually. It was fascinating and sad yeah. and funny and yeah. all, had all the, all the bits of, of the of the Bellwoods and and you know Sarah yeah. is a has written several screenplays. In fact, one she wrote with She's very that, that starred uh, Brian Cox. Really, friend Brian Cox starred in Etruscan oh, Smile. It's like a road road movie. Really, that's yeah. great. Well, Brian, I knew Brian in nineteen. Uh, I think I'd just done Clockwork, but he was in uh, Lindsay Anderson directed. Uh, a David Story play called In Celebration. Alan Bates was the main brother, and uh, Brian played the youngest brother. And it's a, a minor, um, it's about a minor, the father is a minor, you know, the working class guy, and it's his anniversary, I think the 40th or something. And they, the three brothers come back to the little house uh, where they grew up, uh, to celebrate, and all the, of course, the skeletons come out of the closet, yeah. and it's a brilliant play by David Story. Um, and in fact, I did it in New York because uh, I'm going to pop that up in the notes. What? Oh yeah, David Story. Yeah. Lindsay called me and he said, um, "Are you uh, still doing those awful films that you've been doing?" I said, "No, no, I've just finished one." Um, I've got a bit of time off, thank God. He goes, I, I want you to come to New York uh, to do In Celebration. And I went, oh, I couldn't do that. I'm not going to follow Alan Bates in that part. Yeah. No way. No way. I saw it three times. I loved him. It was great. 
He goes, Malcolm, don't be so ridiculous. Do you think only one actor can play Hamlet? <laughs> I went, well, no. He goes, look, you have your strengths. Alan has his. I said, well, uh, what's Alan's? He went, jocular charm. <laughs> I went, mine? He went, danger. I went, no jocular charm? <laughs> he goes, no, not much. <laughs> so I went and did it. And he was right. It doesn't really matter. You know, he's apples yeah. and oranges. That's why these rewards are so ridiculous, of course. You know, really. Yeah. Well, it's as we're taping this, they just concluded the Academy Awards, which was very strange this year. I peeked in a bit. It was at Grand yeah. Union Station. And I feel like Hollywood is getting back on track. The message they said about all this energy and enthusiasm for yeah. film, that people are going to want to get back to that. I feel that's true. I feel it's true yeah. because we tell ourselves it's true. And in some of these movies, they got like Nomadland. You know, that's an Ohio connection. Chloe Zhao, she lives here. I know. That's yeah. amazing. I, good I, I, was, I voted for her. Oh, oh, so. I shouldn't really say that, but anyway, it's over now. So yeah, nobody's going to um, take it back. No, I, it's a beautiful film, and Francis McDermott's amazing. Owned that performance. and It's so wonderful. But, but, you know, a lot of them were extremely good. Um, I was very pleased, though, the um, uh, Korean lady won for Best Supporting. I thought. In that, Minari? The yeah. one about the farmers in I Missouri? I love that film. You know, it probably wasn't quite an Academy Award winning movie, but certainly was worth and is worthy of a nomination. Beautiful, yeah. I haven't seen it yet. I got to get on your um, oh, screener cool. list. Yeah. <laughs> well, become a member of the Academy. <laughs> I probably should. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about, no. or did we miss? I think you've been very generous with your time, and I think we went through everything. Yeah, I think we're good. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, sir. I really appreciate it and uh, hope to see you and Kelly. How's Kelly and the boys? Everybody good? Everybody is good. Yeah. Well, Beckett is singing up a storm. But, you know, he used to be Monday night at the Vine. Yeah, I remember. And that actually, open mic night. Yeah. that was really great because it really taught these young kids, you know, him and, and his friend Luca, particularly those two, it really taught them how to, uh, even though there was only like eight people there, sometimes only three, and sometimes 30. But yeah. you, it taught them the discipline of being, you know, a singer and, um, and really, uh, and just to go through with it and give your best. It doesn't matter if there's only one person, you know, it doesn't matter. Or just do it for yourself. Yeah. And they really learned something. And, you know, they did it for a couple of years and we have a lot to uh, to thank, you know, for the vine. It's great. And I hope they yeah. come bouncing back. It's a terrific. I think place. so. I think Ojai, as a live music spot, is due for. Yeah. It used to be the honky tonk capital of Ventura County. There were like yeah. twelve or thirteen live music places, and then it just shrank down. And now, hopefully, it'll open back up again. Yeah. 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 Well, we've got some very talented musicians here. We sure know, do. We've got Danny and the Tim. You know, they're brilliant. Oh, yeah. I had Tim on the podcast. That was a really fun talk. Yeah, he's yeah. Just such a talent. Yeah, thoroughly talented. Amazing. Yeah. 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 We've got some great people here, you know. Yeah, including your yourself. Well, I'm not a singer, but I'm... Uh, you are a dancer, though. I, I mean, didn't know. No, I'm not a very good dancer either. <laughs> I get away with it, you know. That's about it. 
All right, sir. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Uh, Thank we'll you. We'll see you around the campus. You bet. Just thinking out loud. It's great fun to catch up with Malcolm, who has always been very generous with his time and talent. Hopefully, you will have had as much fun as I did hearing his inexhaustible trove of stories from his amazing career. I especially encourage you to watch his performances in Lindsay Anderson's If an Oh Lucky Man. On another note, so to speak, I enjoyed sharing our perspective on Ojai's burgeoning music scene and our hopes that we will once again become the center of the musical universe, or at least in Ventura County. And if so, I predict that Malcolm's sons, Beckett, will be in the thick of it. That's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.